too many years now we've looked at caregiving as just a mom's job, but it's a mom and a dad's job. And your role in your child's life will literally impact your child's future. So whether you're, you know, in a relationship or a single dad, I think you still have the power to create a really good life for your children. If you show up, just show up and, and like you said, be your authentic self and be attuned to yourself, like the insight. I, I think sometimes we are on like automatic and we power through life without reflecting and that reflection piece allows us to grow. And if you could take that time to reflect and sit back and, and just like whenever you have arguments with somebody, learn something from that. Whenever you have a, a disagreement with somebody at work and you might have responded in a way that you didn't want to, reflect on it. Take the time to reflect and that will have the biggest impact on your life and on your child. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rising Father podcast. I'm Chris Rodak. I am extremely excited to have Dr. Cindy Huffington. She's a neuroscientist. She's the host of the Curious Neuron podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Chris. You bet. So <laughs> went through your stuff and been like just, I forget who recommended you. It might have been Rich. I don't know. Someone recommended you. Someone You were on someone's podcast. I was and, on Rich's podcast, yeah. Okay. And then I just was following you since then. I just really love what you're talking about, specifically in terms of parents regulating their emotions and how that has to do with what turns up in our kids. But I, before I jump, because I want to talk about that. So before I jump into that, can you just give like a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a PhD in neuroscience and I studied mental health, specifically schizophrenia and how it impacted um, our cognitive skills and how emotions played a part in that. Because there's a lot of little parts that we don't think of with mental health and like the lot, you know, the the loss of motivation for something or the loss of pleasure in something that you used to enjoy. So that's the part that I studied for schizophrenia and psychosis. And um, after having kids, I decided to leave research and to start Curious Neuron. Curious Neuron was just a blog at that time. Um, I, I just felt that parents needed more of the whys behind parenting. There's lots of people telling us what to do in parenting and how to do it. Lots of family members and strangers too. And I just thought that I needed to take what was available in science, what I was reading personally, and, and make it accessible to parents. So I started the blog, started the podcast um, and the social media accounts, and it grew very well. And I think it's because it shows that parents need the why and they want it. They want to understand, you know, I don't want to tell you what to do as a parent. I want to give you what I find online in terms of the research, not online in terms of Google, but um, I want to give you that information and I want you to make that informed decision on your own. I don't know you and I don't know your family, but I want you to at least have the information you need to make those decisions. So that's where everything comes from for Curious Neuron. Beautiful. So the research you did mostly, you said, was with um, schizophrenia? Right. Yeah. Was, any of, was any of that um, like relationship parenting based or did any of that have to do specifically with children or was it just in general schizophrenia? Yeah. So I studied the early psychosis part of schizophrenia. So I studied mm -hmm. youth and that's why I had to learn. I had to understand emotions and how they develop and how they um, are uh, impacted by mental health. And that's what led to Curious Neuron. I knew the emotions part and I naively went into parenting saying, you know, I understand what emotions look like in kids. Mm. I've studied the development of it. So I got this. And then my firstborn child, um, you know, started having big emotions. And I realized in that moment that I had no idea how to control myself. I had never, ever taken mm. the time to um, revisit my own past. I, you know, had some adversity and um, kind of went through life not really caring about it. I thought I was resilient to it. I had a father who left and didn't turn back. And I just thought, hey, you know, I had a strong mom. I had very strong male figures in my in my family, my grandfather and my uncle. And thinking, you know, why would this? I had a good childhood in the end, you know, and mm -hmm. it's only when I became a parent that I realized I needed to revisit that. And there was some, you know, uh, adversity and trauma that I needed to address. And it only hit me when I had a kid. And that's why Curious Neuron, to me, you know, I started Curious Neuron by just some, like talking about the um, development part mm -hmm. of the child's brain, thinking as long as a parent knows how the child's brain develops, they've got this. But as I had my first, 
then second, then third child, and then went through my own mental health issues, I realized it doesn't matter how much we know about our child. We need to know more about ourselves. And that's when I shifted mm. what I was talking about with Curious Neuron. That's great. It doesn't matter how much we know about our kid. We have to know about ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I found – I really resonate that, with that because for me, if I look back, like I have a, I have a 10-year-old and, eight, and an 8-year-old. Mm. And if I look back on just the decade that I've been a parent to my son, it's been very different. Like how I've shown up and how I've reacted in my parenting abilities is, is very greatly. And also just how I'm, I am emotionally in front of them. And the times I feel like I was the most unregulated or I or if I had specific moments, I was like, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. Or like, I don't, I don't like that I behaved in that way. It was usually when I wasn't in control of myself. It was when I was less mm -hmm. disciplined or I was more out of shape or didn't have great routines mm -hmm. or wasn't um, efficient in my life at that point. And I feel like, like when I really started to get that part of my life together, um, it really affected everything like emotions, discipline, how I'm talking to my kids. And then you can see a visible increase in those kind of things that are showing up in your children at the same right. time. Right. Like it, that makes complete sense. Even on the little days, right? Like if we look at the days where we're stressed because of some deadline at work or we had an mm. argument with our partner at the beginning of the day, we're not going to parent our children the same way. But then we're going to often see it as their behavior is very different, right? So they're behaving badly and I'm struggling with them. Whereas it's actually I'm struggling with my patients. Perhaps my tone is different. My body language is different. So they're, res they're responding to that and their behavior is coming out. But we, we see it as them sometimes when it's us. Those hard days happen. But it, like you, I'm glad that you brought that up because when we, you know, we hear self-care and I, I, I think it's important. I talk about that. But self-care has this idea of like just leaving your child or coming back and going out shopping or whatever it is. But it's not that. It's truly about your your body and your mind and how mm. much work you're putting into it. And if you do put the work into it, which is what I try to, you know, guide parents towards, then you do see an impact in how you're responding, right, to your partner, to your friends, family members, to your children. You're reacting less because you have those skills and those tools and you're able to respond rather than react. And children respond to that, right? It's, it's very important for them to see that response from us. So I, I'm glad that you brought that piece up. Yeah, there's a, I feel like there's a divide. There's people whenever, whenever you're stressed out, there's, and maybe both things are right too, because some people say, well, you know, I'm stressed out, so I need to do this thing to take my stress away. Mm -hmm. You know, self-care, whatever it is, I need right. to go. And there's also the other kind of point of view, which is like, I'm stressed out because I can't handle my situation right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not strong enough to be stoic during the stress. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can't handle my emotions and maybe they're both true and maybe there's a time for both of them. But like one of the things I just did with a bunch of guys in my group, we just did a long fast. And for us, it was like, why are we doing it? Yes, for some health benefits, but the message behind what we were doing in my group was, okay, we're, we're fasting because we want to be suffering in pain and hungry, mm -hmm. but still be able to practice being emotionally in control as husbands and fathers whenever we're kind of intentionally stressing ourselves right then. And through that, we've had all these revelations and great um, conversations about like, man, I'm so hungry, but I'm still at dinner time with my kids and my family. And I'm not like complaining about it, mm -hmm. but like, where is there a time for both things? And like, not, is there a right way, but where do you kind of fall in that? Like, I'm stressed out. Do I do the self-care and go treat myself or is it more, I need to kind of build myself? I think everyone is different, right? And I think the, the key point that I heard from what you just said is something that I do talk to parents about. So if you think about the fasting and then you're sitting at the table and that inner dialogue of I'm really hungry right now, but I'm, I'm intentionally sitting here with my kids, right? That sort of mentality that you had and your, your group had, what if we were to have that during times when things weren't going well in our, in our lives, right? Like what if that was the same mentality that we brought in to parenting where it's not always perfect and often not. <laughs> and what if, you know, like right now, I know a lot of people are struggling with mental health. A lot of people are struggling with financial stresses. What if we were still sitting at that table, having that inner dialogue of it's okay to be in that position. Many people are in that position right now. I'm going to do the best that I can and show up for my kids, right? Emotionally and mentally show up for myself as well. Like what if we were able, and I think that's where a lot of us struggle where we see these very difficult moments as failures. And 
if we just see it as a struggle and what it mm -hmm. is, and we acknowledge the emotion that comes with that, I am overwhelmed, I am feeling defeated, I'm feeling depleted, I'm feeling whatever feeling or emotion that comes with that, to at least acknowledge it the same way that you are at that table saying, I'm hungry, <laughs> but I'm here, then I think things would change in many homes, right? I feel that if we had that mentality for ourselves, rather than feeling that we've messed up or we're going to mess up our child or that we can't look like we are weak or that we've made mistakes or that we're going through a hard time. What if we show up with the way that it is? I think that we could um, support our child's emotional development because they will see how we have struggles. We They will see how we cope with them, mm -hmm. how we um, communicate these struggles that we have and how we move past them. And, and that's what builds re resilience in a child as well. We were talking about a similar thing with a guy, um, different podcast, and he was talking about going to a jujitsu tournament for him. It was his very first jujitsu tournament, and his son was there. And the he was nervous because he said, "Well, what if I don't win gold, and my mm -hmm. and my son doesn't see me win gold?" And there's, and he said, "I I you know I need to go so I can show him that I'm a badass and that I you know I'm I'm the, I'm the best." And I, and I understand right. that, and I I want that too. Like I want right. my kid to think I'm Superman, and all that. But also, but, and he did win gold, but I, we were talking about, like, okay, well, well, what happens if you failed and you lost every single one? Like, are there also lessons in there? Yeah. Because if not, and this is, I haven't thought this way forever. This is the kind of like recent, recent thinking for me. It's like, whenever I'm failing and making mistakes, if I don't do that, and my kid doesn't see me do that, then I'm kind of putting this perfectionist attitude onto them right. where exactly. they're only worthy if they can have a perfect outcome and they therefore it kind of takes the risk out of their life. Like I'm not going to take a risk on this thing if I can't know the outcome already, mm -hmm. or if I can't, if I'm not going to be successful and it's okay, then it's not okay. But it, it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying. Like mm -hmm. we have to be able to make mistakes, fail, not be perfect in front of our kids because otherwise we're telling our kids they have to be perfect. And if we can show them how to deal with that, through our own life, then we're t giving them permission to not be perfect and to still love themselves and teach them exactly. how to deal with it. Exactly. And you know, I think that we could still set very high goals. I don't think what we're saying right now is saying that we can't have high goals. So you're setting those high standards for yourself. And I think that's perfectly fine. But if there's a failure there, not to mask it or to seem like you're okay when you're actually frustrated, right? Like show them like even Superman, you brought up like being superheroes, right? Like even Superman has weaknesses. So what what does he do? How does he move past that? And as as a parent, sure, we want to look like we are that superhero, but the odds are is is that our child's not going to have that perfect life. So it's easy to to paint the picture of like how to navigate through life when everything is going well. But what do we do when those nothing is going the way you want it to do. What if they're, you know, in college and failing everything that they really hoped they would pass? What if they thought they wanted a certain career and it's not working? What if they're at their new job after graduating and their boss isn't nice and they are in an environment where they're being disrespected? We want them to be able to analyze and to know that they're worth it you know, to like leave something or not to think that they're failing because they're leaving that job, but to like, there's so much around the failure that they're going to learn. And that's why we have to show that, you know, I was giving a, a workshop in a school. This was like last year and um, a father raised his hand and I had just talked about expressing to our kids if we struggle with emotions. So if we lash out at them or if we say, said something that we regret to, to revisit that moment, to sit with them and say, I had a moment where I lost control or I'm, I had a hard day and I should have controlled my emotions, but I didn't. And that father raised his hand and said, I, I personally don't agree with that because it's showing my child. I, I'm telling them I have, um, a, I had a failure or I'm telling them that I'm not perfect. Hmm. And I said, no, you're telling them that you're human. There's a very big difference. Yeah, and, that's, and that's my message, I think. Yeah, that's so, it's a hard one to grasp though, because you, like, because the, there's a large population of people. I feel like I thought this way one time too, was like you would want to put your best foot forward and you really want to show your best. And that there's some truth in that. But like, it's just, it's not that that's not true. It's like, there's also a missing piece though. Mm. And it's like, you are setting your kids up for just such a huge identity crisis. Mm. Um, and a lot of this, I, I read, there's a book, I don't know if you read it called um, Healing the Shame That Binds You. 
Um, no, goes in that. goes into this a lot about like childhood identity and trauma mm -hmm. and stuff, and talks about like the shame that we we as parents can give to our kids if we're only praising them and loving them if they're behaving in a certain way. The terms right. he uses the term human doings instead of human beings. Mm. Um, I think it's John Bradshaw, and like this is so in line with that because. It's like, man, if I'm not, if I don't allow my, and I know I've already said this, but if I don't allow myself to make mistakes, I'm telling my kid that it's, that he doesn't have to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. My son, my son's very first jujitsu tournament, he didn't place, he's pretty good, but he didn't get win any medals and he, he, you know, didn't get bronze or anything. And I was so grateful for that because if he came in and just dominated mm -hmm. and just crushed everyone, then he wouldn't be as good as he is right now. He wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to teach him how to learn through that failure. Um, and after he lost, he, he was able to handle his emotions in that first tournament. Like he lost his match. He cried a little bit. He saw other kids crying. I said, it's okay, man. And we, we worked through it. And the, the lesson there was like, you're crying. You're not getting what you want. You're failing, but it's okay. Like, it's all right. You're right. going to fail again. <laughs> this, you're going to have hundreds of these matches in your life. Like you need, if you want to be good, you need to fail at a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, but then also like, I have to remember that whenever I'm trying to do things and I'm telling him that I'm going after goals, like, yeah, I might fail too. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do though, especially as a guy, like it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do. I, I get that, but I appreciate what you just shared. I think it's so important for, for parents to hear that and dads to hear that too, that we, you know, allowing that child and, you know, sometimes people ask me, cause I, I use the term like an emotionally safe home. And what does that mean? And what you just, just described is that emotionally safe home where a child is able to say, I'm, I'm sad. I I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. I gave it everything that I had. Like, am I enough to question that, but to have somebody there to remind them that this failure is it's, it's learning. It's part of what's going to tell you which skills you need to work on, right? Whether it's, whether it's school or a sport, I tell my kids this all the time. Like if you didn't do well on an exam, that's what are you learning from it? What, what do you have to practice the next time? And, and what do you have to work on? So in both sports and academia, I think it's, it's the message that we have to send our kids, not that message of perfection and you better get the, the good grade or you better, you know, rank well in the sport it's not about that that's setting and, and some people feel i've had this discussion with many people where they feel that it's it's not putting enough pressure and that a child needs pressure sure mm. but the pressure is different right it's about helping your child set that goal a high goal but then understanding that you might not make it and when they don't being there to comfort them you regardless of your child's age that they're five years old or 15 years old that comfort that they get from the parent builds that connection and, and that's important for them. That's going to build their self-esteem and resilience. It's not about saying, well, next time you should have tried harder, right? There's a difference in how we show up for our kids. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the, I feel like for what, you're, what I'm getting from what you're saying right now reminds me of building routines into our life that help us. And here's why. Because you're talking about like, okay, well, you did good. A parent telling their kid, you did good and I need to pressure you so you get first place in this in this race or whatever this this event is. That is one thing. There's the other approach of, no, you need to learn how to practice every day. You need to develop a hard work ethic. You need to develop the correct routines that you that identify you as a person. Because otherwise, we develop kids that only identify with the results they have exactly. versus who they are as a person and their daily habits. And for example... Nathan um, practicing for his jujitsu tournament. We mm -hmm. like the lessons there was we are going to win some, we're going to lose some, but we need to practice every day, have hard work and just kind of be positive about it. Mm -hmm. Like that is the win yeah. more so than just getting the first place at this right. one tournament at his right. age of eight years old. But us as like adults, if you're a guy who's overweight and, or like, if you're anyone who just has a goal in your life, you want to start a business, you want to transform your body, transform your relationships. Like you can put so much pressure on the end result and be like, well, if I am not there yet, I can't be happy. Yes. You know, when I lose a hundred yes. pounds, then I'll be me. Right. Like I'll, I'll only be the true me when I, when I can see my abs. Mm -hmm. Like if that is the mindset, then you are going to be miserable up until then. And then when you hit that point, then you're kind of lost instead of like, no, today I ate healthy, I tracked my macros, and I went to the gym. Like, this is my routine. That is who I am right now. It's not this end result. It's the things I'm doing every day. And I feel like that is the lesson 
that we're talking about with our kids. It's like, it's not results oriented. It's who you are as a person. Right. Yes. 100%. That's exactly what we're saying. And I think, you know, those small wins, there's a, a motivation factor to that. You know, sometimes I talk to parents who have kids in school that aren't motivated, but you're, if you're, the motivation is the end goal, that grade at the end of the year, that's hard for a child. It's even hard for us. You just mentioned the, like the exercising, right? Like if you want to lose a certain amount of weight, that might take a couple months. And if you're only happy once you get there, you're not going to have that motivation throughout. So it's the same thing with our kids. Like how do we create goals for them? Goals are extremely important. And again, I'm going to repeat that. I, I have no issues with like parents saying like, I set really high goals for my child. That's okay. But the failure comes with that. And I, I do think that those little pieces of motivation help a child and, and, when you take a goal strategically, you're going to break it down into small goals anyway. So what are those small goals to reach that end goal? If you want to win that gold medal, what are the small wins? Like what are the skills you want to practice? And what does that skill look like if you're happy, you know, like with what it's look, I, I don't know the jujitsu stuff, but you know, like how do you break it down into small goals? And that's the kind of support that we have to give to our kids. And that's part of their emotional development. Can I ask you a clickbaity question? I saw it on, I saw it on your content. You said you had a post about oh, spank. You, oh, yeah. Did I, Sorry, did I freeze for a second? Yeah, okay, I'll mark that. Um, so can I ask you a clickbaity question? I saw you had a post about this. <laughs> yes. Spanking, yes or no? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm a researcher. I can't. Why? Well, I, I did. The, you know, I, I'm a scientist and I, I've looked at the research and I know that this is a very heated debate. And I sometimes try to. I, and I always try to approach it from a place of compassion because I know that as parents, we do the best that we can with the tools that we have. However, from the research, it's something that I have to keep talking about. I need to keep talking about early childhood adversities. I need to keep talking about, you know, social media safety. And, and I need to keep talking about spanking because these are three things that I know lead to pos possible. It's always research. It doesn't, it's not a, a, a sure thing. But possibilities of, you know, um, a child struggling with their emotional health or their mental health. So I need to keep talking about them. Um, but when it comes to, to spanking, you know, it, we spoke about emotions. And what I talk about the most is emotion regulation skills, which mm -hmm. means when I'm experiencing emotion, how do I control that on the exterior? How do, I could, how do I speak to myself? How do I control it from the inside? How do I um, behave and act when I'm feeling that way? And... I've spoken to so many parents, people reach out to me and open up about spanking because I've never done it in a way where I'm pointing fingers and say, how dare you? I don't want to do that. That's not the place I'm coming from. Again, because I'm a parent, I know we all make mistakes or we do the best that we can. But when it comes to that, if it's a form of discipline, discipline has to teach a child what's the difference between what they shouldn't do and what they should do, right? What's right from wrong? And I don't see how, you know, intentionally harming a child will lead to them understanding what they should do, number one, and how that will lead to them feeling emotionally safe in that environment if they feel that behaving a certain way leads to that consequence of pain or harm or guilt or shame. There's lots of research around that now. We know, we didn't know that before. I was raised in that environment. I was raised with a hand lifting up, you know, and that was a threat. I had a single mom. She had no other tools, but that led to certain things that I have to deal with now as, a, as an adult. And I don't want the next generation to do that, which is why I need to keep talking about it. What is like a direct that you've seen in the research or studies or anything um, consequence of a kid who was spanked? Like, how does that show yep. up as an adult? As an, so I can talk first about it as a child. So as a mm -hmm. child, children who have been spanked before the age of five consistently um, by the age of seven or eight have higher behavioral issues than those who were not. That's first. Secondly, being spanked or any sort of bodily harm put on by a parent is a childhood adversity. So an ACE um, is a childhood adversity and 67% of us adults right now today have experienced some form of childhood adversity. And that leads to not only higher chances of mental health issues, but also physical health. There are books now and more researchers coming out talking about the impact of mental health and emotional health on the body itself. It leads to higher chances of, you know, chronic illnesses. And we know that now. So 
that is why it's something that I need to keep talking about because what we do today and the environment that we put our children in will impact how their brain is forming the architecture mm. of the brain first, yeah. firstly, and secondly, the, um, the, how do I, uh, the, not the connections, but the predictions of the brain. So uh, who is, it's Lisa Feldman. Lisa Feldman has a book and she talks about emotions and it's these patterns that her brain has. So for example, if me expressing anger at the age of five leads to being spanked, then that means as an adult, I, the pattern that my brain has learned is that when I'm starting to feel anger, I need to suppress it because expressing it will lead to shaming of any sort, mm -hmm. even if it's no longer in the environment. So that's the easiest way that I can break it down. Those are the patterns that the brain develops. And we all came from that, not all, but many of us came from an environment where our parents didn't have the tools now that we have in terms of understanding emotions, that emotional intelligence piece, speaking about emotions, I, even myself, even without a father in the, in the, in the, in the home, when he was present and the memories that I do have, he was either angry or mm. angry with a drink in his hands. Mm. And when he was angry with a drink in his hands, he was a different kind of angry. He was a sad angry. And it's because now in retrospect, I only learned from his father that he was depressed and he didn't know how to express that. So that came from his father, not allowing him to express emotions. It's a cycle. Um, so yes, I, I, I don't know where I was going with that. I forget, but yeah. It's okay. It went, we to, went, to, went to a great place. I it, liked it. It went a little deeper than I thought, but it, that's why I need to keep talking about it. It all kind of, it's like, it keeps on circling back to allowing our kids to express themselves. And that is hard. And that, and we're like right. one generation past the generation where that was just normal that you didn't do it. Like you said, yes, true. so that, that's why yeah. it's like a transition right now. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like you and like just so many people are talking about this subject and even there's so many like father influencers now and just people parenting, parenting is parenting's hot right now. You know, it's yeah. like people, people are very intentional about how can I be a better parent? Whereas, and I'm not, and I don't know just because 20 years, 30 years ago, there was no social media like this. So I don't know, right. but yeah. it does seem like in the past generations, it was just like, we did this because it was done. This is the best mm -hmm. thing to do. Whereas like, they honestly didn't have the opportunity to have these kind of discussions like we're having right now, probably because of social media, we can talk about, okay, now how can I be the best parent I can be? Because I don't want to, you know, shame them or throw them under the bus because right. you know, we all make no. mistakes. Exactly. But I do feel like right now, there's a huge focus on, okay, what am I doing today? What are the long-term implications of it mm -hmm. um, in terms of how it shows up on my kid? I really want to ask you, you mentioned how the brain forms physically different under someone that's under stress, whether it be spanking or whatever the external circumstances are. And what I've, I don't know if I've read or just believe is that, you know, when a baby is first born, giving it physical attention right away, giving it physical love right away, is being as close as you can to it. I'm pretty sure that I've read that that has a massive impact on their intelligence, their ability to have emotions, emp mm -hmm. empathy, and just overall growth in general. Like from the day one, my kids are born, like me and my wife, both have just been constant physical love because I, I just feel like it has a massive impact. Is yeah. there, can you explain a little bit of the science behind that mm -hmm. or how that works? Yeah. So actually it's both directions. So there's a huge change in the child's brain and how it develops. If you compare, they usually look at children who are an adopted, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, who are waiting to be adopted, uh, I forget a nursery or, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm French. So I'm having the word in French in my head. Uh, anyways. So they look at children who have been highly neglected versus children who are in homes and mm -hmm. they do that to have a really extreme case. But the brain of a child who is nurtured, who has a caregiver that holds them, that responds to their crying, they build that, the attachment, a strong attachment with that caregiver, right? Versus a child who isn't being held, who isn't having that physical touch, who is crying and not having anyone respond to that. That's, those are extreme cases. However, within a home, you're, you're exactly right. Every time the child cries and we, um, we attend to them, there's an emotional language being said, right? It's, it's that when I cry and I'm in stress or I'm feeling stressed, you are there to comfort me. That co-regulation piece is forming their brain in a way that if we, they don't receive that, it will not form the same way. And the way that it's forming 
is their stress system and also something called the HPA axis, which is how the body and the brain is connected. So we, we are telling their nervous system that they are safe with this particular caregiver and that when they have higher level, levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, that eventually they will learn how to lower it themselves if, we had been, we, if we've been there from birth nurturing them and helping them lower those cortisol levels. So that's on the child side. But what's beautiful is that there was this study that looked at the changes in a mom and a dad's brain. And what they saw is a mom obviously has like these really high changes of um, the their brain and the way that their brain is functioning after giving birth. And it has to do with um, expanding of this, the, the parts of the brain that have to do with social a social emotional interaction, right? So obviously you think about it, you have a new human there and your, your body wants to naturally release what it needs to do, you know, in order to bond with that child and connect with that child. But what they saw in the fathers is the more time a dad spent with the child, that more skin to skin or that mm. being held or that eye contact, their brain changes were very similar to moms. Only if they spent the same amount, not the same, but a lot amount, like, a, a high number of, of hours with that baby. The dads who did not spend time with their children didn't have the same brain um, changes. So wow. it reminds us what you just said, that time that you spend with your child. And part of my work, by the way, is is really highlighting dads, obviously part because of my own upbringing. Um, but I, I never wanted to be, and this is not to go against moms, I, I, I never wanted to be just a mom group that from the start. I started Kirsten Durong Kirsten Neuron wanting to address both moms and dads, knowing that I needed to address both moms and dads very differently. And also knowing that dads have way too long have been neglected in this picture of caregiving. In research, I, I you know, there's lots of studies that I post and people will say, where's the dad? And it's not there. They, they haven't, they didn't compare moms and dads. And that's a mistake. Um, they should have, but only now are they bringing dads into the research and only now as a society, we're starting to talk about why aren't we talking about dads more? Because they're, like I just said, their brain undergoes changes the, the more they spend time with their child. And also the more time a, a father spends with their child, especially before the age of five or six, we're seeing differences in the brain of that child, higher academic um, performance, um, better um, uh, relationships when they spend that time with their dad. We are not getting the same... Um, caregiving, I guess you can say, from the mom and dad, obviously. The dads tend to take more risk with their children, right? Like the dad is the one throwing the child up in the air. The dad is the one saying, jump off the highest, you know, step at the park. Try it. Just jump off the highest, whatever it is. Whereas the moms, most of us, not all, but from these studies found that moms don't put that level of risk very high with their child. So the child is learning something extremely different. They're getting the nurturing part from one parent and they're getting that risk um, development from the other parent, which is what I think complements each other and what leads to a child who is confident, who is resilient and who takes risks later on. So there's mm -hmm. a lot that we need to do uh, in terms of bringing dads back into the conversation. Why do you, do you see a change right now in terms of studies being done? And you said it wasn't in the past. Is there a trend to involve fathers more in the studies right yes. now? there's a trend now and um i'm actually uh, putting in my first grant application for a, a research study with kirsten Ron, which is why I, i've been a little bit busy um Amazing. a researcher reached out to us uh to me and um they are studying dads specifically and looking at digital health platforms and how that can support dads we know that 68 percent of dads are searching online for parenting advice and relationship advice in terms of how to support their partner especially when they transition to the to parenthood for the first time um but there aren't enough trusted resources and evidence-based mm -hmm. resources out there for dads which is what they look for they want to find the science right they want to know like don't don't just tell me what to do but tell me why um and so since Kirsten neuron is a well-established uh you know digital platform we're going to do some studies uh, on on Kirsten Neuron and see specifically in dads how we could um, create a platform that's more appealing to them. Amazing. What, what kind of platform? So Kirsten Neuron itself, and now what we're just trying to do is what the study is looking at will look like. Look what the study will look like if we do get the grant is what do we need to have that platform? Like what do dads want? What are they looking for? What are they searching for? And 
does the experience for a dad on this digital health platform have to be different compared to what moms are looking for? And how do we bring up the conversation? So for me, what's more important is not just the mental health piece, but that preventative piece, right? So if you might not be struggling with anxiety or depression, but perhaps you never learned how to regulate your emotions. And if I can teach you how to do that and how to support your child's emotions, then I know that we are protecting your child's mental health later on. So that's my, that's always been my goal with Kirsten Ron. And that's what we'll be looking at. Yeah. I mean, if you, whenever that gets going, let me know. I'd love to spread the word about that. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, guys are looking for educational parenting, educational relate uh, relationship content constantly. Um, And you can speak from experience or you can speak from, you know, studies and people like pull the information they want to and like kind of find the truth in the person they're listening to mm. based on whatever kind of relates to their life. Um, but if you have actual studies behind what you're saying and you have a, a vast resource for guys, I think that would be really, really um, beneficial. Yeah. I'd love mm. to spread the word about that. Thank you. Um, one, one of your posts you talked about, you said parenting, uh, the parent is the child's first teacher with how to respond to their emotions. Um, what did you mean by that? So in the early years, we often hear people saying, you know, when they go to daycare, they'll learn their social emotional skills or in, in preschool or anything that has to do with the external part of the home. But in reality, before the age of five or six, a child is developing their social emotional skills within the home. And what they are looking for is how we are modeling these emotional coping skills. So the big picture of this is A child needs to learn how to recognize their emotions, how to label them, how to cope with them and how to move past them. This is part of emotional intelligence. But we just keep hearing so much about social emotional skills. But there's a pre aspect to that before you can understand emotions in somebody else like and develop your empathy. And well, the empathy develops earlier. But just to say, like before you could have this conversation with somebody and kind of be in tune with how they're feeling, you need to be in tune with how you're feeling. Right. So that emotion regulation piece is what I talk about. And if a parent within the home is not modeling how to cope with emotions, that child is taking that in and and saying, well, when I'm angry, I should be acting this way or behaving this way. When I'm sad, I should be I should be, you know, responding to that this way. When I'm anxious or worried, this is how I should do it, because they're looking at how the parents are, are, are modeling this within their home. In addition, there's something called the tripartite model for parental socialization. It's a long word just to say. One more time. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) three times fast. Um, So this, this tripartite model talks about three very important things in that early environment. One, like I just said, how the parent models their emotions. The second one is how um, the parenting style that is being used within the home. Parenting style means, are you balancing warmth and connection with boundaries, right? There's this, mm. um, and I need to touch on that very quickly because there's yeah, please do. This, these terms, all these types of parenting, there's so many, I had no idea because in research there's only four. Um, but out there there's positive parenting and, and conscious parenting and responsive parenting, whatever you wanna call it. I think that there's been this really uh, huge misconception around these types of parenting that you're supposed to be your child's best friend and no boundaries and do whatever you want and freedom because I had no freedom as a child because I was raised in this very authoritarian home. Doing the opposite of your parents. And I think the pendulum has swung way too far. We need to bring it back. We are not, research is not saying that a child shouldn't have boundaries. In fact, a child without boundaries is going to struggle with their mental health. There's research around that because without boundaries and limits in the home and rules, the child becomes an adult and then there's rules. <laughs> they can't avoid it. And yeah. they struggle with the um, disappointment around not getting what they want and having to follow rules. And that leads to higher chances of anxiety or depression. So that has been shown. However, on the other end, if a child is raised with only rules, that authoritarian home that most of us know of, right? Where it was like that in my home. I'm the parent. I you do as I say. You have no say in whatever I'm, I'm about to do or, or say. And that kind of home where there's no warmth and no connection and no emotional safety for that child, that leads to behavioral issues because the child 
needs that connection. They're going to look for some way to get your attention. We look at it as clingy or they're whining, but it's not. They're looking for a human connection. They're mm -hmm. looking for warmth and they will do it in any way that they possibly can. And it comes out as a behavioral issue. So we know those two extremes lead to that. What we want to do is bring it to the center where there's a balance of that warmth and connection and the boundaries. So that's the second part of that tripartite model. And the third part is arguably the most difficult one is how you um, express and communicate emotions with the person in your home, the other adult, not your mm. child. So modeling in front of the kids. If you are exactly it. So it's a different form of modeling, right? There's the modeling piece on your own. Think about yourself in the car. Somebody cuts you off. How do you respond? Versus if you have a disagreement with your partner in your home, is your child seeing that there is respect even when you don't agree? Is your child seeing that even two people that love each other can be very angry? There's nothing wrong with that, but that they repair and they revisit and that they're hugging and they're back together and you see the love again, that it's okay to have those moments, but that there has to be a moment of repair, not ignoring what happened. If the child sees that, these three factors lead to a higher uh, emotional intelligence and these emotion regulation skills that are stronger, better academics, all everything that we said at the beginning. So those three points are extremely important for a child. Thank you. Now I know that the three point triglyceride, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> um, off the rewind to see that term. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me, the last point you said reminds me of there's some guys who will say, I'm a great father, but bad husband. Mm, um, and that, that, yeah, and that doesn't make, that doesn't jive with me. Like no. to me, you can't be a great father if you're a bad husband. Like, you're, you're abdicating one of your greatest responsibilities as a father. Like, have, have you heard that before? I've heard it many times. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I had the same response as you do. I think part of being a great father is being a great partner, being a great husband. And it's hard to hear that sometimes because I know yeah. I, especially coming out of the pandemic, I was getting so many emails from partners, both dads and moms, um, that were struggling with their relationship. And I know I, I could, you know, it, it must be very difficult to have that in the home if you're not, if things aren't going well, but it doesn't mean that you have to disrespect each other. And obviously when children are young, you don't have to explain everything to them if things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. But it's like I tell my kids, you can be mad at me without being rude, right? Like it's, it just falls back to that. And the more we could, and I don't know if you've read, oh, what was that? Mm -hmm with the negotiator guy, never split the difference. Have you read that book? No, it's so never split the differences. Who's uh, the author? Uh, cross, uh, Chris Voss, Chris Voss, not crying. Chris Voss. Okay. So he talks about, it's funny because I read that for business, but I mm -hmm. took a lot of parenting tips from it, you know, in terms of negotiating, it's not about winning. And I think many of us struggle with even communicating and, and, even myself coming into my relationship, I've been with my husband since we were 16 years old. So we, we've, we've been through our ups and downs. Um, I'm 40 now. Uh, but just to say, we, I, I had to learn what communication is later as an adult, right? Communication to me was always about like how much talking is happening, but it's not. It's how much listening is happening. Mm. And when you are listening, are you truly listening? And are you, I, I spoke about perspective taking on my podcast last week. Are we able to take on the other person's cognitive perspective? Like what are their ideas and thoughts and what are they trying to get across? And are we able to take on their emotional perspective? You might not have said something to hurt that person's feelings or to shame them or to disrespect them. But even if they interpret it that way, then you have to at least take on the perspective to understand why they're responding that way. It's not easy. These are all cognitive skills. We didn't learn that. So there's a lot of unlearning from what we saw. I mean, you know, I painted a quick picture of my childhood, but like they, they never communicated. By the way, my father only spoke French and my mom only spoke English. <laughs> so you can imagine the arguments. <laughs> my mom spoke a bit of French, but it was so, <laughs> it was very interesting. Um, but just so around, this, around you, they still spoke in two different languages? No, so my mom would speak some French to him. Um, because he didn't understand a word of English, but I had I had to speak only French to him and only English to my mom. I had to, so I, I had no choice but to learn both languages. I'm from Montreal, Quebec, so I, I had to learn French no matter what. But it was quite interesting, you know. Um, yeah. 
but but all this to say, uh, you know, there's there's some um, there's some video. Was it Esther Perel? I think she has these books. I haven't read them, but I keep watching. She has a TED talk, and she was on Diary of a CEO mm. uh, recently, I believe. But she talks about like this figure eight, and how you you're bringing into this argument a lens of perhaps something from your childhood, uh, whatever lens you're bringing into the argument. It's like we, it's like this figure eight of going back and forth between the two partners, and we have to kind of see what we're bringing into that conversation. So, that third piece of that tripartite model is the most difficult one because, like you said, many of us struggle in our relationships sometimes and how we communicate and how we argue. And if we can work on that first, we will see a difference in how our children are behaving around us. And if we can work on ourselves and how we model emotions, I guarantee you, you will see a difference in your child. Yeah, that's hard. Um, it is the, the partner, the partner aspect, and being the best. You know, because a lot of what I do is based around being a father and a husband. But you know, it's rising father, so it's very fatherhood focused. Um, but if you if you leave that, you know, the intentionality and skill building strategies with your wife, man, you get left behind. And it's, mm. it's easy to do it can, because some, a lot of times, especially if you're, you know, I have a lot of guys who have young kids in my group and they're trying to work out, they're trying to wake up early, set up routines and it's the chaos of life that happens, especially, you know, if you're a lady and you're pregnant, plus you've got yeah. toddlers running around and you're, you got yeah. jobs. And they're like, I remember when my kids were like one and three, how insane life was. And, mm. you know, we both let ourselves go a little bit, weren't as disciplined right. and yeah. like I, just months pass where you're like, oh man, we haven't gone on a date. Right. Like in like months, like we haven't, yeah. we haven't, I haven't said a single flirty thing to my wife in like <laughs> weeks, you know, just because yeah. you're not thinking about it no. and you're in survival. And you mode. can really, t and then it, yeah. And then years mm -hmm. go by and you're like, man, our relationship's different, mm -hmm. you know, gotta be like so intentional about it every single day. It is. Can I ask you a couple, I got, yeah, no, go ahead. Oh no, no, that's it. No, but you're right. I just want to highlight that to be intentional about it. It's not about, and so my husband and I had three kids in under four years. Um, so you can imagine the chaos mm. in the home. Um, but all that to That's say, we did also go through that period. I think that it's okay to sit in that period of like, this is difficult. It's not the end, but it's a difficult period. How do I get out of that? And that intentional piece is very important. Same thing with my husband and I. It's only when we started being intentional of like putting a little post-it note for each other, you know, like in the home mm. or at least acknowledging our presence because when we had three very small kids, I honestly think there was like a very long period of not even acknowledging our presence because it was always go, go, go. One baby was up. Yeah. I was taking care of that child, nursing. He grabbed the other one, start work. I'd have all three. The day would, and then you just pass out on the couch and you're like, <laughs> is the day over? No, it's starting over again. You yeah. know, like it's, it's, I, I just want people to be okay if they're in that period and say like, it'll get better, but you need to be intentional about that connection. Yeah, it'll get better. And also, it's like, like we talked about earlier, it'll get better, look forward to it getting better. But also right now we can do things to better right. handle ourselves. Like, cause I look back at that time and I, I kind of use that as an excuse to eat unhealthily, to not go to the Same. gym. Yeah. You know, I, I, like I, I could have just because things are crazy doesn't mean I have to go to McDonald's right. <laughs> just because things yeah. are crazy. Doesn't mean I need to drink beer. Like yeah. I could, if I, and if I would have taken, put more effort taking care of myself when things were crazy, I would have been more emotionally regulated and then had more energy to take care of other people. Mm. So, but it's, it, but it's hard to do that because you think, well, I need something right now. Like I need something to take the edge off and the stress off, but That's really true. it just kind of compounds and spirals. Yeah. No, but that's a good point. I, I, I appreciate that you brought that up. Um, a guy in my, I've asked for a couple guys in my group that said, do you have any questions for you? Um, someone said, what are some strategies for parents to cope with children who are going through a temper tantrum under the age of three? Do we redirect their attention or do we allow them to go through their emotional wave? That's kind of what we were talking about. I love that question. A bit of both, actually. So at a very young age, um, you, you do, if, if your child is struggling to snap out of it in a sense, right, and, and move past, I, I, think of, um, I think of it as a mountain. When the child is at the top of that mountain, which is that temper tantrum, their uh, emotional part of the brain and their thinking part of the brain, isn't, they, they aren't really interacting very well. They're not communicating very well. So that time is not a good time to say, 
hey, remember those deep breaths, buddy, that we learned, you know, like it's a good time. You don't say that. It's, it's just, you can say it once. If you notice that you're not connecting with your child, they're, they're just in their emotion and they're stuck there. Let them be support them. You know, it's not a moment to, to discipline for the behavior because it does look like behavior. It's a moment to say, Hey, you know, I'm here for you when you're done, come see me or, you know, getting down at eye contact and being like, I'll wait for you, you know, like just being there for them. Cause at three and younger, they're still so young. They haven't even begun developing those emotion regulation skills. You're going to start seeing them develop closer to three, four years old, where you can actually say at that point, remember those deep breaths we practiced last week, you know, like try doing that, but not at the top of the mountain when you notice that they're becoming dysregulated. So the more attuned you are mm -hmm. to them, you might know, well, on our way back from daycare or preschool, they're hungry, they're dysregulated. And I tend to have bigger emotions when I come home from that being prepared for those moments or noticing you say something to your child and they completely ignore you or they stomp their foot that first time. Hey kid, you know, like I, I see what I, I could see your emotions are getting a bit bigger now. How about we sit down? How about we turn the music off? This like we forget about senses, our five senses, or well, we have more than five, but like our we forget about like how the the environment impacts our level of dysregulation. So for a child is coming back from preschool or daycare, I just want to acknowledge this because I know some sometimes parents don't realize this. The heightened um, aspect of any of their senses, whether it's uh, having been around a lot of noise or very bright lights or um, being touched by a bunch of kids all day and being jumped on, right? Like they had fun, but when we bring them home, their system's completely dysregulated. And then we get the worst part of it because it's dinner time and then bedtime and they're dysregulated during that moment. So acknowledging when the temper tantrums are happening and, and seeing if you could reduce the risk of it happening and just being there for your child, showing them that warmth and connection and saying, I'm here for you. You can still set boundaries. Remember, we spoke about the boundaries before. You can still say, it's not okay to hit, not okay to throw toys. Um, but, yeah. you know, take them away from that situation if it's happening. But saying, I see that you're having big emotions right now. Come see me when you're done. So you're not completely ignoring them. You're letting them know you're there. But there's nothing you can do when they're at the top of that mountain. Mm-hmm. His second part was, well, how does one deal with throwing and hitting? And you kind of touched on that is take them away from the situation and acknowledge yeah. what they're going through. Yeah, I did that with my three kids, uh, especially the two, boy, the two boys. You know, it was like putting them on the staircase. <laughs> how, old, how old are your kids? Now they're four, six and eight. Um, so it's getting easier. All boys? Uh, no, two boys. The oldest is a girl. <laughs> so the oh, eight year old's a girl. Poor her. Yeah. <laughs> She's always taking care of her brothers. But, you know, I would separate yeah. the boys when they would argue and it, it and it, so let's say one would throw a toy or one would hit the other one. It wasn't a timeout for us in our home. It was just I need to keep you safe and I need to keep your sibling safe. So I'm going to put you on the side. I'm going to take you. I'm, I would speak out loud. I'm sitting you on the stairs. Have your emotions. It's OK. And then getting to the root of it. One thing that we do is when we see these temper tantrums. We see them as behavior, but there's an underlying emotion to that, right? My, at that time, let's say my two-year-old would hit or throw a toy at my four-year-old because he was trying to get the toy, but my four-year-old wasn't sharing. So I saw it as what skill do I need to offer you? What tool do I need to offer you? So I taught my two-year-old how to ask for a toy. And then I explained to my four-year-old what taking turns looks like. So it wasn't just about the timeout or putting them to the side or, or, you know, acknowledging the emotion, there also has to be some learning aspect of how do you interact in the social environment with your sibling? Mm -hmm. And in all, in all honesty, there were a handful of times with my three kids that I could probably name where they had these big temper tantrums or big emotions, but they were addressed. Like my, my now four-year-old, right when he had turned three, he, it was bath time and he was really mad at me and he yelled out, I hate you. And I was like, oh, that never happened before. With my other kids, I was like, all right. <laughs> so I waited mm -hmm. for the emotions to, to, to go down. You don't have a con It's the same thing as adults, right? Like we don't have a, a connected conversation when we're heated up. But I waited for everything to be done. And we had the conversation that it's okay to be very mad, that you don't want to go to bed or you're disappointed. But saying things that are mean hurt other people's feelings. And it's not nice to say these things. And we addressed it. And the next day, he had, again, big emotions. And when he went to bed and had controlled himself, he said, see, I didn't say it this time. <laughs> so he had already, <laughs> just to say that at just turning three, he had the ability to think through, like, 
okay, I learned yesterday mm -hmm. that that was wrong. And I gave him an ultimatum, not an ultimatum. I gave him, um, uh, instead of doing this, do that, right? Like, come see me. I will help you through your emotions. Yeah. You have to give them a, we always say like, don't do this. Don't do that. But we never tell them, but you can do this. And the more they can learn, like, don't climb on the couch. But if you want to climb something, climb the stairs or climb this play couch that I got you or put the pillows on the floor and climb those. We need to give them the opposite, especially when they're three years old or younger. They don't know what the opposite of the no is, right? Like, don't walk, don't cross the street. Sure. But where can I go if I want to walk or, you know, or well, you can walk on the sidewalk or you can walk on this part of the street on the side. We have to tell them that. Yeah, because... For us, it's so easy to just want to say no right. and have them yeah. listen, and then problem is solved. It's done. Yeah. Then, but for in their perspective, like they only know what they know, and if you're telling them no to a certain action, like it could you for for me, I'm you know I'm thinking, well, don't they know that they can't? It's like, no, maybe they literally have never experienced that before. It's like. It's exactly. like a kid seeing, you know, the water, the beach for the first time. He didn't know mm -hmm. it existed until he saw it for the exactly. first time. Mm -hmm. But it's easy to forget all those little details and be like, no, maybe this doesn't have to be a big emotional thing. Maybe I can just literally say, no, just look to the right. You can't do that. You can't do this and just kind of bring some new reality into their reality. Exactly. They're learning everything um, for the first time. Yeah, it's easy to forget that. Mm -hmm. Another guy said, you kind of touched on this. He said, effects of yelling at your kids, I'm guilty as charged. I've gotten way better since getting my shit together. But mm. sometimes I screw up and have to apologize. I'm just curious to hear your feedback on the implications of yelling at our kids. Well, he answered he answered it in his question, apologizing. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> That's the repair piece. Just apologize. You know, first, I, I never please guilt on a parent who's yelling because we all do it. Um, and we all have moments and that's okay. However, I tell parents, if you are yelling every day, multiple times a day and never, ever have control of your emotions, then go back to what you were saying before, right? Like, are you taking care of yourself? Is there any outlet that you can have for your emotions or are there skills you need to develop in terms of regulating your emotions? You know, uh, you know, acknowledging your emotions or, or learning how to express them in a healthier way. You can work on that. But it's not that there's a consequence for yelling at your child. There's a consequence for never repairing that broken relationship, right? Think about the yell as I just created a, uh, you know, I just, it's not a broken relationship, but it's like um, a cut, you know, and, and how am I going to heal that cut? Well, I'm going to sit down with my child and say, I'm sorry, I, I yelled and I shouldn't have done that. Or I did because I was feeling that I wasn't being heard. I've done this with my kids. I'm sorry I yelled, but the three of you are running around. It's, 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 it's bath time. And, you know, I have a deadline that I have to, I have to go work and I'm, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. Have that conversation with your child. They'll understand you a lot more. Um, but that repair piece is the most important part to all of that. Yeah, that's something that I've been working on over the past couple of years. Is, and for me, it's when I have to do work and my kids are there and they want to spend time with me because I'm I'm very intentional about spending time with my kids, but there's also some times where I just have to get some work done sure. and they also want to spend time with me. And I feel like I used to not explain the situation to them well, where I would kind of beat around the bush and kind of move into another room or distract mm -hmm. them or something like shut the door, whatever it was. But now I'm trying to just be like extremely honest and open and, and authentic with them to say, guys, no, I need to spend some time doing business things right now. This is how I provide for the family. You need to just give me two hours by myself. And it's not kind of the exact parallel of what you're talking about, but it's not being manipulative about it at all, not being passive aggressive, not beating exactly. around the bush and just saying, I need this. Yeah. And you know what, that let's use that example. And regardless of it being let's say a partner that you're speaking to that says like, I really want to watch a movie with you tonight. No, we haven't been together. We haven't seen each other. And you're like, I have to finish. I have a deadline that I need to meet. Whether it's an adult or your kids, how can you find ways to create a moment of connection either before you start that two hours of work or after? So for example, if you tell your partner, um, if you give me two hours, I also really want to watch a movie with you and sit down with you and connect. Um, let me, let me just finish this and then we'll watch wh whichever movie or with your kids, you can say, I can spend 10 minutes with you right now. We can play a game of Uno or whatever game together, however old your child is. 
Um, but then after the two hours, I'll have a lot more time. What do you guys want to do after I'm done with my two hours, right? Like, how do you establish those moments of connection with your loved one, child or partner, so that they feel in that moment, not the resistance or the pushing away of like, just leave me alone. They feel that I, I, I love you. I want to be with you, but give me some time. There's a very big difference in that form of communication. Yeah. And I've, I've almost had to like say those things, like especially, um, whenever it's like bedtime and, you know, at some, I sometimes tell my kids, I said, I have to spend time with mom right now. Like mm -hmm. I've, I put you guys to you sleep. That too, yeah. Now it's mom time. <laughs> like, yeah. because if I said yes, my kids would come down 10 times for five hours straight and be up till 3am. Yeah. So same. <laughs> like I, I just have, I've just been very blunt and honest with them recently where I said, guys, I put you to bed. I still love you, but I need to spend time with mom. Mm -hmm. And I just have to like cut to the chase and that's say that it. needs yeah. to happen. But that's the connection piece. And you're, you're not just saying like, get out of my face. There's a very big difference. Right. And, and by yeah. expressing exactly what you're thinking and saying, I, I love you guys. You know, we had a great day together, but now it's my time to connect with your mom. I think that just shows the children. There's that relationship piece that they're seeing and that there's that love. You're reminding them that you're there for them and that you love them. But like, now's not the time. It's bedtime. Go to bed. <laughs> Um, let's see. Someone said, any advice for raising kids in two separate households where the other parent refuses to co-parent? This is coming from a father. Mm -hmm. I regularly miss extracurricular activities because I'm not informed they're, en they're enrolled. How do you address the kid's disappointment with me when that happens? And at age, if ever, is it okay to discuss the mother's tactics? So very specific yeah. situation there. That's very specific, but a common one. Um, I want to start with the last piece, like addressing the mother's tactics, because what's hard, okay, the research that looks around like separation and divorce talks about that piece of the two parents in front of the child still being an important one, right? We spoke about that tripartite model. And this is the hard part, because how do you keep peace in front of your kids when there's no peace and there's a lot mm -hmm. of res you know, resentment, perhaps, and a lot of hatred between the two parents. But the worst thing the these that this partner is doing is trying to create a, a, a division between like the father and the kids, let's say, and not telling him that there are extracurricular curricular activities. I think it's so important to maintain that relationship. And the research has shown that the, the, if a father remains, you know, still is still a, is present after divorce and that there's still a, a good relationship in front of the kids, it doesn't have to be a good relationship behind the scene, but in front of the children, it helps them, work through the divorce and because it isn't a, tr a childhood adversity. So it's hard. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not in that situation and I, but so many people are like men and women and yeah. who knows in everyone's situations yeah. who's at fault or whatever. Right. But man, it creates such like toxic feelings towards each other. When your heart's ripped out from you from either side, it's right. really hard not to have all that resentment. And then when a kid's in the middle, man, it just creates so much chaos. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I have also spoken to parents that have gone through separation, but have maintained very, um, you know, a civil kind of relationship in front of the kids. I know that it's possible, mm -hmm. but I know that it's very difficult. I, I didn't experience that as a child. And I know that it's difficult on the child's end because you're just seeing fingers being pointed as to who's the worst parent, right? And and you don't want to paint that yeah. picture for your child. So if anything, you want to try not to do that for both partners. But just to go back to that question, I guess that father in particular is being, you know, is in a situation where they're being penalized. And it's just about showing up for your kids as much as you can. Having the discussion, I wouldn't point the finger at the parent, but just expressing, Hey, I really want to be there. And maybe that child will speak up for the father. You know, I don't know. It's a very difficult situation. I, I, I don't have specific advice for that, but to keep showing up and to keep showing up emotionally when you're with your kids, you know, everything that we spoke about still applies when you're a single parent, but it's 10 times harder because you have more stresses. Yeah. You have, you're more of overwhelmed. You're alone to take care of the kids. So it's a lot. And I want to acknowledge that. Um, but as much as possible, remembering that you are still important and that you need to take care of yourself physically and mentally and trying to show up for your child the same way. Yeah. And I'm no expert in that at all. But when people ask my perspective, I'll, I'll, the only thing I say is just control what you can control. True. And that is yourself. Like you yeah. can't control what they're going to say about you. You can't control 
the dynamic between the wife and the daughter, wife and the son, if you're separated. But all you can, tr- can control is whatever time you have with the kid, you can just be your best self yes. then. Yeah. You, know, you can build yourself and be happy, confident, wise, loving, and warm during the time you do have. Mm-hmm. Like that is the highest ROI thing you can do. It You mm-hmm. can't be thinking about what the other person's saying to the kid or because you have no control. There's nothing you can do about that. Right. The only thing you can do is whenever they ha- whenever they're living with you, whenever they're experiencing you, just like be a light for them. Yeah. And you know, just magnetize them. Like that's mm-hmm. just be the best you can be. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. It's, it's it's really the only thing they can do. And I know that it's easy to point fingers and to get mad at the other person if they're behaving in a way that you don't agree with or they're stopping you from seeing your kids. I'm not saying not to fight it you know, and, and have those discussions with that partner to try to change that. But in front of your kids, there's no point in pointing fingers and trying to make the other person look bad. But it's not yeah. easy. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on. This is an excellent podcast. I had such a great conversation. I could just keep on talking for hours, but Same. I know you got yeah. grants to write and <laughs> empires to run. No. Um, so we talked like an encapsulating thought for me in talking with you has just been what I do impacts my kid, how in control of myself I am has a massive implication on the life of my child. Um, If there's like one, I don't know, I hate when people say one piece of advice to give to people, but if there's first, (laughs) because my audience is mostly men and (laughs) yeah, my my audience (laughs) is mostly men and fathers. So if there's something that you've seen from your work and, you know, just your, your experience, something that dads need to hear, maybe what would that be? The dads matter too. I think in, I don't know, <laughs> that's the only thing I could think of. I, I, I think I expressed it before, but for too many years now, we've looked at caregiving as just a mom's job, but it's a mom and a dad's job. And your role in your child's life will literally impact your child's future. So whether you're you know, in a relationship or a single dad, I think you still have the power to create a really good life for your children. If you show up, just show up and, and like you said, be your authentic self and be attuned to yourself, like the insight. I I think sometimes we are on like automatic and we power through life without reflecting. And that reflection piece allows us to grow. And if you could take that time to reflect and sit back and and just like whenever you have arguments with somebody learn something from that whenever you have a, a disagreement with somebody at work and you might have responded in a way that you didn't want to reflect on it take the time to reflect and that will have the biggest impact on your life and on your child i don't know if that's the that's all i can make up no that's great just <laughs> dads you matter too i think it's yeah. just all you need um, great. Well, if there's anything you would like to direct people towards your podcast, business grants, anything, let's, sure. let's hear it. <laughs> I will reach out to you when I have, if I get that grant, so we'll hope for that. Um, but, uh, yeah. if, if, if dads are looking for information, there's curiousneuron.com where I have articles written by graduate students and researchers. There's a podcast, curious neuron podcast available everywhere. Uh, social media is curious underscore neuron. And I'm also the co-founder of an app we are a tech startup and it's called Wondergrade. Uh, and Wondergrade helps parents teach their children emotional uh, regulation skills. So there's a parent center on the app and a child center with this character. It's animated, it's for ages three to eight. It helps them learn mindfulness and meditation and, and just how to calm their nervous system down and also helps a parent calm theirs. So that's available on Android and on Apple as well. What's the app called? Wondergrade. Uh, w, wonder grade. Yeah, okay. wonder grade. I'll send you a link to that. All right, I'll share that. Yeah, please do. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. It was awesome. Thanks, Chris. Have a good day.